Good morning and welcome back to The Word. My name is Mitchell Weber, your host. Um, this is your first time with us. Welcome. It's good to have you. If uh, if not, if you've been here multiple times, welcome anyways. Um, glad to have everybody here listening in, tuning in. Grateful for you all. Uh, this morning we have another interesting chapter here uh, in the psalm as we tackle Psalm chapter 4. Uh, we may have to split it up into two parts. We'll just kind of see how we're doing on time here. It's another short one, but uh, there's a there's a lot going on here, a lot to be said and uh, talked about, uh, some questions to ask and potentially answer and even discuss further with uh, family members or friends or whoever it might be. So without further ado, we will read the Word of God, we'll pray, and uh, we'll get right into it. Psalm 4. This is the word of God. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart, on your bed, and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart, more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will... I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, we thank you for just this beautiful morning. God, I pray that you continue to guide and direct us. Father, fill us with your spirit. Father, help us to learn and grow. Lord, this morning I ask that... uh, If I say anything that is of myself, Father, my own opinion, Father, anything that is contrary to your word, I pray that it just goes in one ear and out the other, Father. Help me to learn as well, Father. Help me to understand your word. Help me to uh, seek to understand how it uh, is applicable to my understanding of you, Father, and how it's applicable potentially to my life as well, Father. Help us to learn from this psalm from David. Father, I lift, lift up our uh, listeners and maybe those who couldn't uh, tune in because they're sick or traveling or whatever it might be. Father, Lord, we just ask that you keep them safe. Father, heal them if they're ill or hurting. Father, Lord, I pray that despite the circumstances of this world that uh, many would come together, Father, in your name, Lord, to glorify you, to seek you through everything. Lord, again, we love you. We thank you for this beautiful day. Uh, Pray for safety for all. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, so like I said, uh, chapter 4. This is is a a big passage, I think. Um, Something that's just, there's just a lot, a lot here. So I'm excited to kind of really move through it. And excuse the pauses here and there. I've got a coffee with me this morning for once. (laughs) So, excuse the little pauses here and there, but uh, chapters 3 and 4 of Psalm, they might be best read uh, in conjunction. You know, I don't think we could 
I think we could actually really read uh, chapters 1 through 4 so far in conjunction, but uh, just because we might see some parallels uh, here from some of the other chapters. But uh, for the time being, we'll just we'll focus our attention on chapter 4, but I'm sure as we move throughout chapter 4 this morning, we'll reference some of the, uh, um, the other chapters. Uh, before we begin, real quick update too. Um, so this is chapter 4. The plan right now is, if we do split this up into two parts, um, we'll, we'll, we'll do two parts, the two parts uh, consecutively, um, and then if that's the case, before we get into chapter five, we'll have a, a special episode where uh, my wife, Cora, I've already talked to her about it, um, she'll be interviewing me, kind of giving you guys a personal testimony of myself, she'll be asking me some questions. Uh, so that'll be fun and interesting and hopefully uh, helpful for you all as well. Uh, and then after that, we'll jump right into Chapter 5. So just be kind of look on the lookout that with that. Uh, just be flexible there. Um, we may either go straight into that or um, if we get this in one part today, then um, we'll do Chapter 5 and then, and then my testimony. We'll just kind of see how it goes. Uh, but just keep an eye out for that. Um, but back to Chapter 4. So... Verse 1, starting in verse 1, David again calls out to God. He pleads for God to hear his call and immediately afterward gives a title, God of my righteousness. And that is in the very first few words of the uh, verse 1 in chapter 4. So what's, what's, David's, what's, what's he claiming here? It is God who makes righteous. It is he who is the ruler, right, over all. It's a recognition of kingship. That's what it sounds like. So David knew righteousness didn't come from himself or any of the works that he could ever possibly perform, right? He makes that claim. He gives God this title. He understands that it's from God, not from himself, right? In fact, this is, this is the only instance, interestingly enough, in Scripture that this title is used. So, so let's pay special attention to it because I think it's important. So David is recognizing that God is author witness, maintainer, judge, and rewarder of righteousness. So I think this begs the question, and I think we can have a little discussion before we really go any further. What is righteousness? I can kind of give you guys a second to think about that as I sip on my French vanilla latte. That's good. Um, what is Righteousness. And, and some of the definitions might uh, differ. Uh, maybe you include things that I don't or don't include things that I do. That's, that's okay. But I think this is a good general definition of what the Bible uh, would say righteousness is. Righteousness is boldly living out what God says, acting in obedience to his word and living justly to others, right? Living rightly. So hold on. Sounds like a works-based salvation. Well, if we actually truly understand righteousness, we must understand, again, that it comes from God. You act in accordance to his word if you love him and his word. So what I mean by that, I think I've said it once before, uh, but one of my, I'd call him my pastoral mentor for, from uh, Hayes, Kansas, one of the things he said in a sermon several years ago was, Uh, what did he say? I gotta remember how he worded it. Obedience is not what we do to receive grace. 
we are obedient because we have received grace, right? It's because we've already received it that we desire to act in obedience. It's not to gain more. You can't quantify it. You can't quantify grace. You can't count it. But because we have already received it, if we are saved, our our love is living in accordance to the Word of God. It's not living contrary. We should seek to live away. Living apart from His Word should cause us to, should really cause us to just run back to Christ. It shouldn't draw us away from Him, right? So, remember again, uh, from chapter 1, you have the desire to, to serve, right? The desire to do rather than just consume. So remember back to chapter 1, we're planted by the waters. The righteous man is planted by the waters, and he produces fruit in season, in its season. So you see, when someone becomes saved, the road of, sanct- the road of sanctification, being made holy, right? Uh, I, I like the, uh, the uh, gardening example here for sanctification. You're pulling out these weeds, but you're not just leaving it barren, right? You're planting something new there, and that something new is the word of God, weeds being sin. The road of sanctification, it is long and hard, but it is far more rewarding than these earthly pursuits that are temporary, that are here for a second, that fill maybe the desire for a very short time being, but very soon you go looking for something else to try and fill that void, right? You can't fill a cup that has a hole in the bottom, right? That's just silly. If I drill a hole in the bottom of a cup and try to fill it with water, it's not going to happen, right? I'm constantly going to be trying to find something else. In fact, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because we'll see that further on in chapter 4, what we're talking about there. But coming back to uh, verse 1 again, the Holy Spirit inside you that you are given when you are saved will produce the fruits of righteousness. In fact, turn with me or... Maybe you can listen into Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. This is from the NET version or translation. When you heard the word of truth, this is chapter 113. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. So I think it's important to understand this, right? The word heard here, used specifically in the Bible, is the Greek word akuo. It's to perceive or understand, right? And I think this is really important uh, to, to really grasp. There's, I think there's different ways of hearing. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to speak for all men here, but I will certainly speak for myself. Sometimes my, when my wife talks to me, uh, I zone out, right? I, I, hear, I hear what she's saying, but I'm not fully grasping. I'm not fully understanding. That's what we're getting at here is a full understanding to where you are affected by it. And then immediately after, David states, having also believed. So, right, there's an action after the herd. You can't just hear and then do nothing with it. So why is that important to understand? Well, many people hear but disregard, or maybe worse yet, they hear and they use it for self, right? There are plenty of people out there that use the Word of God for self-glorification to further their own wealth, right? That's an improper use of the Word of God. But this is, I think... I don't think it's a bunny trail, but I think it's really important. It's super interesting. So the word seal there uh, from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the Greek for that is fragizo. Uh, if I'm not, if I'm pronouncing that right, it's fragizo. 
and that's sealed, meaning sealed from Satan. That's that's like a literal translation. So I think that's so important. And one of the uh, reasons, actually, why th- this is a direct argument against the, uh, I would say, lie out there that um, you can lose your salvation. If you were truly saved, and if you are truly saved, right, you have the seal of the Holy Spirit, you receive the Holy Spirit, you are sealed. You are sealed from, you are sealed from Satan. It's it's a reason, uh, it's, it's a direct reason, I'd say fact, to know that you can't lose your salvation. That's directly from Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 13. So how does this, coming back to righteousness again, how does this all play into righteousness? Well, with a bit of understanding of the seal upon us, which is the Holy Spirit, take a listen to, uh, or even uh, look, if, you, if you're able to, at Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 and 23. And some of you are probably familiar with this, but uh, it's good to read. This is uh, Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such, there is no law. So why do we read that, right? Well, see, these are the fruits of the Spirit, right? That's that's what we read, right? It's not of man, but of Spirit. It's not the fruits of man, but the fruits of the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. So I I do not have the power to do so as the Spirit does, apart from the Spirit. I am by myself incapable of producing eternally good Things, but by the Spirit who resides in those who are saved, are these things possible? So this is this again brings up an interesting point. I had a good conversation uh, with uh, one of the one of Cora's good friends, who she introduced me to a little while ago, about well, can unsaved people do good? Like, is that possible? Well, uh, I think that's our next question. I think the answer is. Yes, they can. And in fact, Corin and I had a really good discussion about this. Well, she gave me some good insight. So a lot of the stuff I'm about to say um, is kind of paraphrasing uh, what she was saying because it's, it's similar to my understanding. Um, and I think it's twofold, right? First of all, I believe we use many words maybe flippantly nowadays. And one of the big examples we hear a lot is the word love. Uh, there's, there's a vast difference between the word love in the Bible and the love that the word love that we use nowadays in the world, right? Maybe it seems precarious or trivial, but uh, you know, when when I go around and say, "Well, I love basketball," or "I love ice cream," well, no, I like those things. I don't love those things, and you know, maybe that's trivial, but I think it, I think words words matter. So. For the, for the instance of good, and this is where Cor and I had a good conversation, excuse me, um, was instead of using good for certain things, we can use the word like, right? We can use kind, thoughtful, appreciative. But that alone, one of the things her and I agreed on, that, like, that alone is not a one-size-fits-all statement. So second of all, we are created in the likeness or the image of God. So it, in my opinion, seems odd to think that an unsaved person cannot do good. They are created in the image of God. God saw that it, man was good in his eyes when he created him in uh, Genesis, uh, in the Genesis account. So it seems preposterous to think that they can't do any good. So here are my supporting texts. You can 
I won't turn to them specifically right now, but you can kind of look at them later, but Acts 10 uh, and 11, those are the chapters, Acts chapter 10 and 11, Cornelius is offering prayers to God, which, mind you, he's not saved. And when he offered these prayers and alms to God, God was pleased with him. These things were good. So Cornelius, an unsaved person, did something that was good. He, I think, later became saved in chapter 11. You have to fact check me on that. And in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 25 to 29, Ahab, Ahab excuse me, the king, he was a very wicked, wicked king. He was one of the, the bad kings of the Old Testament. But interestingly enough, if you go back and read these verses, Ahab humbled himself before God, and thus God reserved the calamity uh, for the days of Ahab's son's house. So God saw this and, and saw that it was good that Ahab humbled himself before God. So it's interesting, right? So I think that's a, a good uh, stance to kind of think about that, well, even those who are unsaved, they can still do some good. So let's recap here, right? We're all capable of some good. It would be far-fetched, again, to say that an unsaved person had no kindness at, at all, right? I'm sure we've, I'm sure many of us, all, if not all of us, have come across somebody that's not saved, but they've been extremely kind. Uh, in which, by the way, that is a fruit of the Spirit, if we remember Galatians 5, uh, 22 to 23. But I do think there is a distinction between the saved and the unsaved in this manner, but I think that's maybe more of a new, nuanced uh, conversation. I digress. So that was a long talk about righteousness, but I think it's important to understand why David says what he says. So let's go back to Psalm chapter 4. In the later half of verse 1, David proclaims relief from distress and a cry for mercy upon himself and his prayers to be heard. So if we remember David's condition and situation, right? David wasn't perfect. Uh, if we remember back to the previous chapters, he's being pursued uh, by his son and a whole bunch of people who he thought who David thought were going to be with David, but turned against him and went with Ahab. Um, David, we see several uh, occasions in Scripture where David uh, is caught in some serious sin. So he is destitute. His, his condition isn't great. He's under stress of being killed by his pursuers. And he's under the immense weight of sin. That's important right there. But his response is this, God, you have given me joy and comfort in these times. Have mercy upon me and hear my cries to you. So again, David is focused upon God, not self. And, I, and the reason why I said let's pay attention to, you know, he's, he's, he's being pursued by these people that want to kill him, and he's under the immense weight of his sin, right? But where is his focus drawn to? The weight of our sin should point us back to Christ, right? That's not an argument for to continue to sin, so we just keep going back to Christ. No, that's not it at all. But even in our sin, when we fall short, that is, that is a promise, right? We will fall short. We cannot live perfect lives. But when we fall short, it should not drive us away from Christ, right? We should not allow the shame the the guilt drive us away from Christ, to drive a wedge. And that, that seems kind of weird to say and kind of think about, but if you really grasp that and think about that, it should cause us to say, oh my word, I've committed this terrible thing against Christ, against God. Forgive me, I repent, I return back to you. 
That's what it should draw us to do. And that's exactly what's happening here with David. So in verse 2, he immediately switches his focus to his pursuers. So remember back to chapter 2, verse 2, or maybe even chapter 3, verse uh, verse 2 in chapter 3. These were great men, right? And I don't mean like they were good men, right? But meaning powerful. But he still chastises them for their action. He says, how long? And he repeats that phrase several times in that verse. But he says, how long will you turn my glory to shame? That's number one. Love worthlessness, that's number two. And seek falsehood, that's number three. So number one, glory to shame. He says, you claim to love God through works, but but yet deny him. So the problem that he was facing here, and we kind of discussed this in uh, chapter three, is these, these people, uh, the Israelites that David is taught, is saying these things about, they claim to lo- love God, but they do it through works. But when it comes down to the root of it, when we get down to the nitty and gritty, they deny him. They do things, they act in a way that is completely uh, opposite of what the Word of God says. And then he says in number two, you seek things that will disappear from eternity. He literally says, you love worthlessness, you lovers of worthlessness. If you truly knew God, this would not be of you, right? There's no reason else why David would have claimed this against them. But they continued to love worthlessness, things that had no fruit whatsoever. And then he ends with, you continue to seek after that which is false. And it kind of falls in with number two, but they sought after things that didn't have or contain any truth whatsoever. And then interestingly enough, David uses a Greek word here, selah, S-E-L-A-H. And I think we discussed this in chapter three. Yes, chapter three. Um, This is thought to be a pause, right? In, In either... Uh, music or stringed instruments. And the reason it's put here is ponder what was just said. Those were some heavy words that David was using here, especially against his, his pursuers, those that were pursuing him. He paused. He said, hold on, think about this. Read that over and over again. Wrestle with that. Maybe even reflect, like truly reflect, am I really turning glory to shame? Am I loving worthlessness? Am I seeking after falsehood? That's why that's there. And in verse 3, he's he's still speaking to the people he directed his attention to in verse 2. He said that know know that God has and does show favor to those who love him and he hears him who cries out. So think of it in this sense, right? Of, Of a mama bear, mama brown bear and her cubs. You do not get anywhere near, let alone touch them as she will protect them at all costs, right? This example, I don't know that it does justice to what is being said here specifically by David in verse 3. We'll reread it actually. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. That's a bold statement, but it is a promise and it is true, Right? So, but that, that, that analogy, that metaphor, that picture I just kind of painted for us, it paints a picture to the saved and unsaved of the favor God has for his people and the judgment for those who persecute his people, right? So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's just, he's saying this to them saying, 
The Lord knows who are his and he knows who are against him. It's, it's, a, it's a very sobering uh, thing to think about. And then in verse 4, uh, this is probably one of the most, I wouldn't say most interesting, but it certainly is high up there uh, in interesting verses. And in verse 4 he says this, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. And it's interesting, Paul actually quotes this, uh, he quotes the, the first part of verse 4 specifically in Ephesians 4.26. You can take a look at that later. But he's still speaking to his enemies when he says this. And I would maybe venture to say that uh, his scope has now been broadened to all people, but this is one of the most important verses, I think, in the Bible to, to really get a grasp of, to get a hold of, to understand what's being said, because I think you can take it to one extreme or another. And you have to read it carefully. He says, be angry and do not sin. So think of it as this, come to your senses. Okay, well, what do we mean by that? It is okay to be disquieted by the sin in the world and the injustice all around, disquieted about the sin in your life, right? But do not let it consume you to rage and hate. That is sinful anger, right? Easy is the path of fire and hate, but rewarding is the narrow road of peace and prayer. We are commanded then by what David's saying here, we're commanded to meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Why is it? It's an interesting way to uh, think about it. Why, Why did he word it like that in that particular manner? Why the heart, the soul, commune with your heart daily. One who thinks, this is uh, something that I think uh, either Spurgeon or Henry, Matthew Henry said, he said, one who thinks and reflects uh, can be seen as a wise and good man. And that is, a, that is extremely important, and I would say somewhat kind of falling off the radar of many people, excuse me here, Something that's falling off the radar of many people, and that's um, that's reflection, self-reflection specifically. And I think we might kind of grumble at that sometimes, but I think it's important. In fact, it's something that I really appreciate that the School of Pharmacy did at Cedarville was they did their absolute best to instill in us the value of self-reflection, whether that be reflection papers, talking with peers, talking with professors, uh, even, but during our, um, our, uh, integrated pharmacy experiences, our advanced pharmacy experiences, you know, it's so critical to reflect upon what you're experiencing, what's going on in your life. Did you behave a certain way? Can you change a behavior? Is the way you're acting right? Is it wrong? You know, are you acting professional, unprofessional? It, like, it comes down to the way you're living. Is it glorifying to God? Or is it detrimental? Right? It's so important. So that's why David here says in verse 4, reflect upon your hearts. Do so when, you, when you're laying your head down to sleep. Go throughout the course of the day from the second you woke up to the moment you're in your bed now, run through the day's events and see how you live up, right? See how you have acted. See the things that you have maybe said or the things that you maybe looked at and, and, and weigh those things against the word of God and say, okay, what have I done today? 
was I, did I live glorifying to God? I'm not saying that we're all going to be able to live perfect every single day, but it's important to kind of commune with our, we can, we can talk with ourselves daily, often. It's necessary to do so. And I think it's, it's quite simply and beautifully put, uh, I believe it's Spurgeon, those who commune with your hearts daily, one who thinks and reflects, you can be seen as a wise and good man because you're, you're fleshing out how you acted. It, it Really, if you think about it, you're revealing to yourself where your heart is, where it lies, where you stay true to, right? You can kind of see the day's events. What did I stay true to? Do I stay true to the world standards? Or did I stay true to the word of God? And, and again, David properly puts Selah again after verse 4. And I think, honestly, meditate upon just verse 4. Keep that in mind. Memorize this verse. Um, as, as, as it is very important uh, for our every, days of lo- every day of life. Uh, it, it's not just uh, here, here nor there. It's, it's every single day. So moving on to verse 5, we have a command to offer sacrifices of righteousness and to trust in the Lord. So those are two commands, right? We have two commands there. And I would say that the sacrifices here are not animal sacrifices that we typically see in the Old Testament, right? But rather these that David is referencing to are of self, right? As evidenced by the second command, I'd say. So our first sacrifice is self to Christ, so we're, we're learning to no longer pursue evil, but kind of going back to that garden example, it's, it's not enough to just no longer pursue evil. We must, in place of that, also pursue that which is good, which is Christ, right? So we need to do that. Uh, we need to learn to do that well um, because it's something that we are commanded of, excuse me. So, so what David is saying here is that all our devotions need to come from an upright heart, right? If there is a sliver of doing so that is not, um, not fully for Christ, if it's not for Christ, I should say, if it's not for Christ, what are we really doing? Are we, are we serving self, maybe? Are, are, we, are we tricking ourselves into thinking that we're actually serving Christ, that we're doing it for Christ, but we're actually kind of maybe doing it for ourselves, our own image. But David specifically says here, offer the sacrifices of righteousness, self first. All of our, all of our devotion should be to Christ. And after that, he says, we should put our trust in Christ, right? These two go hand in hand. So why is this said? Well, verse six, what does David say? He says, many, many will say, many say, who will show us any good? Those of the world, this is, I'm stopping now, right? That's kind of the first part of verse 6. So those of the world drink in imposterous good. So what is that? That's empty. It's empty. And it's a, and eventually proclaim that there is nothing good. So David asked the Lord to, to lift his countenance or uh, his face upon him or us, I should say, the glory of God is enough for the man of God, for he drinks from the fountain of life. So remember, again, we're going back to chapter 1. We're all going to have these chapters memorized probably by the end of all of this. But remember back to chapter 1, the righteous man is planted by 
the waters and produces fruit in its season. The waters being the word of God, right? So he drinks from the fountain of life being the word of God. Okay, and in verse 7, David proclaims gladness more so than the season their grain and wine harvest increased. So why is, why is that important? So faith is not in the seen but unseen. These that believe in what they see and enjoy an abundance of and, and enjoy an abundance of have no concern for things out of sight. They sway to and fro with the wealth and, and, and death of their crop. But David's gladness in God increases and does not sway. And that's not to say that there's hardship or there's not hardship because there's hardship at times. And it's not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, you have to be glad when a close family member dies. No, it's hard. We, we've been given, we have God-given emotions. But I think the thing we need to kind of pull away from here is, is that wine and grain aspect. That is their, that is their joy. They, they sway to and fro. The, the, the way their field uh, yields is how they react. And that's not okay. That's not good because their emotions are dictated by things that are uh, carnal. And when I say carnal, I mean things that are temporary. They come and go. They wax and they wane. It's not eternal. But Christ is eternal. And that's where David's gladness is put. And David claims his gladness is in God. He has received it from God. And it increases. And it does not sway. So as we close then in verse 8, we see a, a, um, a collected, a calm, collected man. David says he will lie down in peace and sleep despite the army around him. Why? Why does David say that? Well, he says it in the latter half of verse 8. He says, for you alone, God, make me dwell in safety. And this is one of the, I hope that we don't just glaze over verse 8 here because this is so, this is huge. Never as a man felt more safe than with God. Although our kings and rulers might be guarded with soldiers for safety, I would venture to say that none have felt the tranquility of the hard ground in the army around him when God is your salvation. And I'm specifically talking about David in this situation, right? We kind of think about we still have some kings and, and whatnot around the world today. But if we think about it, they have their bodyguards maybe posted outside the door so that they can feel safe when they're sleeping. But even more so with David here in this particular situation, David's got people literally around him. They might be closing in on him, seeking to capture and kill him. But he says here in verse 8 that he will lie down and he will go to sleep. Because God makes him feel safe. He is safe in God. He makes me dwell in safety. Right? That is so important to, to, to understand. In fact, um, if we go back to uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. That's, it's beautiful. It's absolutely marvelous and breathtaking to kind of just ponder that. Like, how many of us, like, I, I, <laughs> I think I'd be a chicken, right? I don't know that I could fall asleep if I had 10,000 people surrounding me. Maybe they didn't know exactly where I was, but the fear of not knowing whether or not they would stumble upon me. But David says, I'm going to lie down and I'm going to go to bed because I know who my, who my salvation is. I know who holds the keys 
of salvation. And that's the beautiful promise, right? Those that trust and believe in God have eternal life with Him. Amen. So I hope this time, this is our, we're closing out here. I hope this time has been encouraging to us all. Um, hopefully you can kind of see why Psalms 4 is is probably up there amongst my uh, one of my new favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, it's just such a beautiful psalm, full of so much truth and promise, um, so much to learn from. I pray that, I uh, hope that you guys can kind of take some time later today and maybe reread through it yourself and uh, just kind of let it seep into every, every part of your life. Um, God can do amazing things. He will do amazing things, and He is doing amazing things. So continue to pray for myself and my wife. We, we continue to pray for you all. We hope nothing but the best for you all. We pray that God continues to guide and direct your footsteps um, in whatever walk of life, uh, whatever path you're walking down right now. We pray that uh, God is just doing great things in your life, that uh, you're glorifying Him in all things. So appreciate you all. Thank you for tuning in again. My name is Mitchell Weber, and uh, until next time, this has been The Word. God bless.